This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. In today's lecture, Stefan Ludwig Hoffmann talks about Charlotte Berard and Reinhard Kuzelik on Dreaming in the Age of Extremes. Whenever scholars across the humanities deal with issues of temporality, with present pasts or past futures, Kuzelik's work is invoked. Yet new histories of fascist and Nazi times oddly omit one of Kuzelik's most incisive essays, Terror and Dream. This talk will explore Kozelik's thinking and conversation with Charlotte Beerat's The Third Reich of Dreams, The Nightmares of a Nation, 1933 to 1939, especially the insistence that dreams are the most telling historical source for understanding how experiences of time fundamentally changed in the 1930s. Stefan Ludwig Hoffmann is Associate Professor of Late Modern European History at the University of California, Berkeley. He is working on several books at the moment, including an intellectual biography of Reinhard Kozelik, 1923 to 2006. Thank you, all of you, for joining us here on screen. As mentioned, I put other books aside during the pandemic and decided to write a book on the German historian Reinhard Kozelik, Kozelik, who's both a historian but also a theorist of history, a historian of crises, theorist of crises, so that seems like a, a project uh, for our time. And what I'm presenting to you today is essentially an excerpt uh, from one of the draft chapters of the book. Manhattan, spring 1980. Rainer Kuzelik pays a visit to the Upper West Side apartment of Charlotte Berat, the German-Jewish emigre who had fled Berlin in 1939. The occasion for the meeting was Berat's 1966 book, Das Dritte Reich des Traums, which Kozelik had extensively studied and, in the summer semester of 1969, had used for a Heidelberg seminar on the history of concentration camps. Over the following decade, Kozelik drafted multiple versions of his essay, Terror and Dream, which he had added last minute to the manuscript of Vergangene Zukunft zur Semantik Geschichtlicher Zeitung, published by Sukham Verlag and later translated into English as Futures Past. At the meeting in Berat's apartment, Kozelik now handed over a copy of Vergangene Zukunft. Once back in Bielefeld, he would write to her in a quote, I do not need to reassure you about the extent to which your dream collection is crucial in getting to know the interior history of the Third Reich. And of course, that is also why he had asked the publisher Siegfried Unseld whether Zurkamp could produce a new edition of Berat's book. Unzelt reacted with immediate enthusiasm. He only requested to see the 1968 American edition and, following a prompt by Kozelik, from Kozelik, planned to review its original artwork by the psychoanalysis Bruno Beckerhoff. Terror and Dream briefly mentioned the informed heart, autonomy in a mass age, published Mass Age, uh, Mass Age, published in 1960, 
in which Bederheim sought to interpret the psychological shock of his own experiences in Bethel and Gutenberg between 1938 and 1939. In his letter to Unser Kuzelik, who had not read Bederheim's afterward, the Third of Dreams, speculated that Charlotte Behrad might be especially pleased to read, uh, to see the afterword by Bethlehem included in the new German edition. In her response to Gesellig, Behrad takes up his formal German greeting, Sehr verehrter, but also adds the more intimate Lieber without noticing it as she writes with a wink in the next sentence. The English edition was unfortunately out of print, Behrad writes, but she was attaching a photocopy of Bettenheim's afterword. But then she cut to the chase. Given that the afterword, and I quote, comes from an ultra-schwarze, unconverted Freudian, Behrad writes sarcastically, it treated her as a lay person who only knows about the manifest dream content and says, like you, that these dreams are dreams of terror itself, waves of terror that invade niches so that they love. So the letter continues, uh, the letter that Berard uh, writes to Kozelek. And it continues with some annoyance, I quote. At least Bettelheim calls it fortunate that the source is now available, meaning Third Reich of Dreams. I, however, find it unfortunate that a dogmatic Freudian wrote this afterward. That only happened because Bettelheim is a very famous name. Lawrence Langner wrote very positively about the book in 1975, by the way, in the Holocaust and the literary imagination, because he was not bound to the dogmatic counterarguments, but rather was following your facticity, fictivity approach. End of quote. As she saw it, only Kozalik could write the afterword. Vergangene Zukunft contained, Berard wrote disarmingly, better than I was able to formulate precisely what was on my mind. In his answer, Kozelik expands upon Beirat's criticism of Bettelheim and of a purely psychoanalytic interpretation of the dreams of the Third Reich. In his 1968 afterward, Bettelheim had insisted that the dreams not only reacted to the political situation during the first years of the Third Reich, but were also expressions of personal inner conflicts rooted in childhood experiences. For Kozelik, therefore, Bettelheim assumed the role of a censor in typical Freudian fashion, quote, which is to say he interpreted the anxiety dreams only as pathological, as if they were not reacting to a society in a state of emergency. A week later, Berat wrote back, delighted by their agreement about the necessity of a political reading of the dreams, that, indicating that some were, in fact, her own dream experiences in the 1930s, I quote. Back then, I wrote what my feelings told me, and I knew, of course, that this diverged from the psychoanalysis textbooks. She goes on to say, employing a term from Kozalik, I quote, I did not know anything about historical experiences of time, but I must have known what terror is. Some of the dreams are my own. The dream that you are referring to about the paper trash can came to me from someone I was very close with, end of quote. Berat mentions an upcoming trip to Switzerland before saying she would like to accept an invitation from Kozalek to come to Bielefeld, though only if allowed by her ailing health. Back in New York four months later, she thanks Kozalek for the hours in your house which you and your wife have arranged so warmly. Apparently during the visit, they also discussed some of the dreams 
and their interpretations, though only later in New York would Berat find the full title of a Heine poem that both had been searching for in vain in an edition of Heine from Kozalik's private library. And that quote had appeared in one of the dreams in, in Berat's collection. Kozalik had also given Berat a copy of the German translation of the other book on which Terror and Dreams was based, Jean Corot's Lazare Paminou, which came out in German in 1959, Lazarus unter uns, which describes the wartime dreams from concentration and extermination camps. Carol actually wrote the narration for Alain Resnais' 1955 Night and Fog, the first documentary film about the concentration camp experiences. And Lazare Paminou has never been translated into English. Four months later, Kozelik sends us afterward to New York and promptly receives an enthusiastic reply. Garrett is grateful that her dream collection has finally been recognized as a source for contemporary historians and that the afterward will refute the dogmatic objections from psychoanalysis without direct mention of Betterheim. She is especially delighted by the epigraph that Kozelik had selected to precede the afterward, a line from Dostoevsky's The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. I quote, but does it really matter whether it was a dream or reality if the dream revealed the truth to me? And Berat inquired about Kozak's family and five children and the offers for university chairs that had come during his time from Göttingen and Berlin. It almost seems as if Kozalik and Berat's agreement about how to read the dreams enabled a close relationship to form so quickly, despite their very different experiences during the Third Reich. One as a persecuted German-Jewish journalist, a Weimar-era new woman and former communist, and the other, more than 20 years younger, as a Hitler youth, and then at 17, a Wehrmacht soldier and later Gulag prisoner of war. Intuitively agree in their sharp rejection of a psychoanalytic reading of dreams from the Third Reich. Put differently, why in their eyes did the dream experiences of the 1930s as well as the dreams of the subsequent years of destruction, as Kozalik further argued in Terror and Dream, elude the Freudian categories of psychoanalysis developed before and after the war. Briefly arrested after the Reichstag's fire in March 1933 and no longer permitted to work as a journalist, Charlotte Berat began to collect and record the dreams of her Charlottenburg circle of friends and acquaintances. Born in 1901, as Charlotte Aaron into a well-to-do German-Jewish family, Berat joined the KPD in the early 1920s in Berlin. There she met Heinrich Blücher, the future husband of Hannah Arendt. Like Blücher, Berat sympathized with the less censorious wing of the party and wrote for Karl Osiecki's left-leaning Weltbühne and other people. In 1969 and 1973, during the Willy Brandt reform era of the Federal Republic, she devoted books to Paul Levy and Rosa Luxemburg, two visionaries of an orthodox Marxism. After separating from her first husband, she married Martin Berat in 1938. And in July 39, following the November pogrom, when Hitler succeeded in making me realize that I'm not a German, as she wrote to Kozelle, and shortly before the outbreak of the war, the pair first fled to London and then to New York, where they arrived a year later, penniless and destitute. When her husband went blind, Charlotte Berat had to secure their livelihood alone. 
She decided to dye the hair for her German Jewish immigrant neighbors and friends right in her apartment, not far from Central Park. Blücher and Arendt also belonged to this circle of friends. Before leaving Berlin, Berat had sent about 300 dream reports, many hidden in books, to friends across the world. She made first use of this material in the 1943 article, Dreams Under Dictatorship, for the left-wing magazine, Free World. But the short essay was not picked up elsewhere, not even in Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, published in Arendt knew Berat well. In the early 60s, did Berat return to the dream collection Encouraged by a writer couple that she befriended, Carl and Ellen Otto, Otten, who were also forced to flee Berlin after 1933. Moving from London to Locarno in 1958, the Ottens called for the translation and popularization of exile literature in post-war Germany. In March 63, the West German Rundfunk broadcasted Berat's one-hour radio feature, Dreams of Terror. And in 1966, the Third Reich of Dreams was finally published by the Nymphenburger Verlagsanstalt. This is the edition that Kuzelik used for his seminar at Heidelberg. Some of the dreams come from Berat herself. Others, like the dream in the last chapter, mentioned a lawyer and notary based in Berlin, who was approaching 60 and later died abroad as a broken person, always ready to make space for paper, was a quote. As Berat writes to Kuzelik in the summer of 1980, the dream came, quote, from someone closest to me, quote, ends. that is from Martin Berard, who was forbidden to practice as a lawyer after 1933, and who, after April 35, had the following dream when Jews in German cities were mandated to sit on select park benches marked in yellow. Two benches were standing side by side in Tiergarten Park, one painted the usual green and the other yellow. There was a trash can between them. I sat down on the trash can and hung a sign around my neck, like the ones blind beggars sometimes wear, also like those the government makes race violators wear. It read, I make room for trash if need be. Other dreams from Berlin Jews, described in the last chapter of the book, bear witness to the way in which the creeping terror and the everyday danger continue into the night. The dreams of Jews, including Martin Berat's, perceived the acute danger with natural clairvoyance through sharp dream images, and as a fact, were rudely awakened from the dream of assimilation. So these are quotes from Bera. These dreams lead to insights about the nature of terror during the Third Reich, a terror that was about to accelerate into a deadly violence, which many in their everyday life could not or did not want to acknowledge. The 1943 article, Dream Under Dictatorship, included the notion that the dream experiences of the 1930s not only testified to the pressures German Jews faced when attempting to adapt to everyday life under dictatorship, but also contained anticipations of the violence that was to come. In the third, year's third Reich of Dreams, written over 20 years later, Berat somewhat alters this argument while at the same time expanding it to incorporate those for whom the path to conformity were open. The majority of the dreams recorded by Beirat did not come from Jews or national socialists. At the beginning of the second chapter, we encounter the dream of a Berlin doctor who, after only one year of national socialist rule, 
dreams the following one night. It was about nine o'clock in the evening. My consultations were over and I was just stretching out on the couch to relax with a book by Matthias Grunewald, on Matthias Grunewald, when suddenly the walls of my room and then my apartment disappeared. I looked around and discovered to my horror that as far as the eye could see, no apartment had walls anymore. Then I heard a loudspeaker boom. According to the degree of the 17th of this month on the abolition of the walls. In order to underscore that these are anxiety dreams that arise not from childhood experiences, but from pressures of adapting to everyday life under dictatorship, Berat adds that the same doctor was approached the day before by the Nazi blockwork manager of the apartment building, who questioned why he was not showing his loyalty to the Third Reich by flying his flag. The doctor, but also Berat, read the appearance of Grunewald in the dreams of the painter Grunewald in the dream as an explicitly political symbol taking the Isenheim altar piece as the perfect embodiment of Germanness. At the end of the radio feature, Träume from Terror, Dreams of Terror, Berat already uses an image that would later summarize the main argument of the book. The dreams were, I quote, dictated by the internal logic of dictatorship, she asserts. In this sense, they seem like a surreal mosaic whose individual stones are each elements of a political reality. The quote continues, this permits their interpretation from a political standpoint and the omission of the fact that many have, that they may have other psychological contents, end of quote. The wall is life and other dreams captured the changes in everyday life under dictatorship and it's, as Vera calls it, antizipierte Wirklichkeit, anticipated reality. Berat reads her dream material and her method of dream documentation as testimony to what Arendt described as the shocking new world of totalitarian rule and what the theories of representatives of psychological dream schools, quote by Berat, could not explain, taking another shot at Bettelheim. In this sense, Arendt contributed much more to the book than its chapter epigraphs alone which came from Kafka, Obrecht, and others. Berat also includes a chapter in which she highlights the very different dreams of those who continue to resist during the first years of the Third Reich, of those who act, the title of the chapter, in the sense that they continue to lead a self-determined beta activa in their dreams as well as their everyday lives. The relationship with Arendt was not free of tension, given the relationship between Berat and Blücher, that went back to the 1920s. But it is easy to see that the Third Reich of Dreams was based on the political anthropology of Arendt from Elemente und Ursprünge totale Herrschaft to the essay collection Fragwürdige Traditionsbestände im politischen Denken der Gegenwart, translated into German by Charlotte Berat, to Vita Activa, first published in English as The Human Condition. All three books can be found in Kozalek's library with extensive markings and annotations. And we know that because Kozalek's library is in the Deutsche Literaturarchiv Marwa. For Kozalek too, the thought of Hannah Arendt, not Sigmund Freud, was key to deciphering the dream experiences of the 1930s. For the conceptual historian, the Third Reich of Dreams constituted a unique source to inform his facticity, factivity approach as Berat describes it in the summer of 1980. That is his explorations of the relationship between language and history. 
On the surface, he was tackling a theoretical problem of his historical epistemology. Where are the boundaries between fiction and the fiction of the factual, as Kozelik describes the metier of the modern historian? That is a source-based reconstruction of past realities. The dream experiences of the 1930s show, Kozelik says, how this distinction is undercut by historical time itself. In a world dominated by utopian expectations, by a total future, the dreams gain a new unique meaning with their inescapable facticity of the fictive. They act as the last refuge for past experiences and as an experience-based anticipation of the coming reality of prognosis. Here is where the dream analysis of Bayrat and Kozalek's theory of historical time intersect. Anxiety dreams, which can be read not only on an individual pathological level, have always emerged during times of historical upheaval from the French Revolution and Romanticism through to our global pandemic. But dreams that contain expectations of the future, premonitions based on collective experiences, as had been the case in the pre-modern era, seemingly vanished in Europe's long 19th century. After the Enlightenment, as Kozalik argues famously in Futures Past, the new world dominated by European empires and concepts got sucked into the vortex of the future. Modern time itself is understood as Neuzeit or new time, an accelerated transition from the past and present into a redemptive future. The gap between distant expectations and actual experiences of the past continued to widen, Kozalek argued. At the same time, the imaginary of dreams, shaped in part by its fantasical bourgeois analysts, narrowed to focus exclusively on secret inner lives, on the private. This changed only in the 1930s, Kozalek claims, following the insight of Berat. In contrast, to his conceptual histories and his iconological studies on the veneration of the dead that spanned centuries, Kozelek was only interested in dreams as far as what they could reveal about experiences of time under national socialism. So he didn't begin collecting dreams you know, throughout the centuries as they did famously for monuments and memorials. For Kozelek, under the conditions of authoritarian rule, dreams were perhaps the singular way in which anticipations of the future could still be derived from experiences rooted in everyday life. In a world of utopia and terror, the age of extremes, only dreams could provide realistic prognoses of the future. This was what electrified Kozalek about the dreams that Berat had collected and analyzed. The 1979 essay, Terror and Dream, is the result of a constant search that took place over the course of more than 10 years, in which Kozalek tried to figure out the questions that the Third Reich of Dreams posed for his theory of historical time, not least the question of the singularity of experiencing Nazi time. As Jan Eike Dunkhase has shown, Kozalek's preoccupation with Berat's Third Reich of Dreams and Jean Corolle's Lazare Parminou was motivated by the question of how history is possible after Auschwitz. Like Arendt, Kozalek started from the premise that the catastrophic break of the 1930s and 40s 
demanded a new anthropology of historical experiences. In 1969, for example, he referenced the Third Reich of Dreams in a statement about his Heidelberg seminar on the history of concentration camps. According to Kozelek, Berat shows that in the context of the emerging terror after 1933, prognostic anticipations suddenly gained new valences. The terror was already so big, Kozelek writes, that it could flood the unconscious unchecked. But dreams were still quite autonomous in which manifest dream content could converge with latent dream thoughts. This enabled them to have a straightforward understanding without a need for analytic translation. This situation thus allowed for the interpretation of dream images as immediate political sources." End of quote. For Kozelek, this is what distinguishes the dreams of the first years of the Third Reich from those of the concentration camps and examination camps. In regard to Kerol, I have shown very specifically that private and personal dreams could only gain representative meaning in their anthropological context for the conditions of possible survival, survival in the camps. This was the case even if there was no guarantee of actual survival because of the infamy of the terrors produced by the SS, who, as Ameri and Levi recount, knew how to overpower and destroy the greatest integrity of the individual without hesitation. Therefore, the psychosomatic constitution of the individual, the acting and the suffering, and what actually happened do not map onto one another. Two years later in 1971, Kozalik used his invitation to the annual meeting of the Göres Society on the theme of rationality and history to give a public lecture on the dream experiences of the Third Reich, his first public lecture on that topic, which he delivered in a modified form at the Düsseldorf Germanists Convention in 1976. Both lectures begin with the doctor's dreams of warless rooms and the lawyer's dream of sitting on a paper trash can. Kozelek formulates his thesis on the first page of How Rational is History, which later appeared also in Terror and Dream. I quote, both dreams are histories that contain an action with a beginning and an end, an action which never happened as recorded. But both histories represent and reflect an experience that gets under the skin. They contain an inner reality, which was not only fulfilled by the later reality of the Third Reich, but immeasurably surpassed." End of quote. Thus, the dreamed histories are not only testimonies of terror for Kozelek, but also possess a prognostic content. Both dreams contain, as Kozelek repeats almost verbatim in Fiction and Historical Reality, the 1976 talk, a higher probability than it really seemed at the time of the dreams. They anticipate the empirically improbable that later in the catastrophe of ruin became an event." End of quote. How rationalist history identifies two historical approaches in order to explain or understand national socialist rule. First, there are causal derivations, social, economic, political, conceptual explanations, the stuff that historians do, that operate in different time spans, short-term, medium-term, long-term. These approaches have in common that they retrospectively give history a meaning 
they impose a meaning on history and make it rationally understandable. But the number of reasons that could be enlisted to explain an event are both objectively and temporally unlimited, Kozelek says. Historiography doesn't offer compelling reasons as to why an event could only have happened one way and not the other. Every historical constellation contains more or less of what actually occurs in any event. Therefore, dreams are so informative for Pizarro. They allow us to understand the historical constellation of 1933 itself on his own terms, including the surprisingly new and the shockingly singular, without deriving it simply from previous histories and explaining it away. Dreams are, as he already formulated in 1971, quote, not only evidence of terror, but a form of terror itself made physically manifest, end of quote. The following key phrases can also be found later in the essay Terror and Dream. I quote, the abolition of walls by ordinance stripped private spaces of any kind of protection. The loudspeaker raises all doubt for the dreamers. The oppressive coercion that the Jewish lawyer faces when voluntarily making room for paper has no need for interpretive translation for those who had experienced this history. In such dream, terror itself happens. They are its manifestations. And in the grand sum of these dreams, the experience of an entire political generation apparently finds its pictorial language." End of quote. The philosopher and theologist Hermann Krings, who had the impossible task of writing a summary of the lecture, of Kozelik's lecture, for the yearbook of the Girls Society, was only somewhat able to follow his argument up to that point. Reference to dreams led Krings in a summary to attribute Kozelik's second argument about temporal experiences during National Socialism to psychoanalysis alone. The last and most important part of the 1971 lecture was simply omitted in Kring's summary. Here, Kozelik talks about Kerol and history writing after Auschwitz and sketched out in dense and cryptic points in the manuscript added in handwriting, you see it here on the right side, for the first time, so this was for the first time, a sketch of his theory of possible histories. For Kozelik, the dreams from the concentration camps showed that even in an analysis taking into account the historical constellation itself, as well as causal derivations, again, you know, the stuff that historians do, has its limits. In the concentration and extermination camps, in which the realities of terror could no longer be surpassed by future violence, experiences of time change again. Forced to flee reality, the dreams from the camps bear witness to anachrony, to the final revocation of historical time, its anthropological grounding in relations between past, present, and future. These are experiences, Kozelik writes, thereby articulating an important motive for his theory of history as historic that cannot be directly communicated experiences that elude conventional, conventional historical methodology, end of quote. The timelessness of the dreams reproduced by Carole can no longer relate entirely to the occurring events. An event such as, as Auschwitz poses a limit that can no longer be rationally surpassed. 
Here, Kozalik returns to his original question. If history itself is irrational and cannot be captured entirely by either causal explanations or contemporary experiences or perceptions, where could a possible rationality of history lie? Here, Kozalik gives two preliminary answers. First, he invokes the negative rationality of the historical method, what he elsewhere calls the veto power of the sources. Not history with a capital H, but only its analysis can make reasonable distinctions between true and false statements. More than perhaps any other historian of the second half of the 20th century, Kozelik was at home in the neighboring disciplines of philosophy, aesthetics, philology, and law. Yet he insisted on historical method as the only way to maintain the distinction between fiction and historical reality and to explore the space in between in the form of historical writing, that is, in these fictions of past facticity, as he describes what historians do. Only a theory of possible histories, Kozelik's second argument, allows one perhaps to keep the fiction of past reality in the realm of the probable. Quote, whether the theory of possible histories is rationally communicable, whether it could be shared by everyone or not, then becomes a matter of agreement of historical reason, if there is such a thing. And he writes on the side, hypothesis, end of quote. Kozalik ends with an outline of some formal categories of his theory of possible histories. And he takes up some of these categories and abandons others in his famous 1985 keynote lecture on one of his teachers, Hans-Georg Gadamer, in which he delineated sharply hermeneutics, Gadamer's hermeneutics, from historical theory, from Kozalik's historic. In other lectures from the 1980s, the time of the historical strike, Kozalik also searches for a genuinely historical theory after Auschwitz that would render the absurd as a temporal experience discernible. It is worth pointing out how unusual and isolated Kozalik reflections on historical theory after Auschwitz are or were among German scholars of his generation. Terror and Dream brought about considerable discontent, for example, at the annual conference of Poetics and Hermeneutics in 1979. Kozalek had finished the essay earlier in the year and in the summer had submitted it as a conference paper for the discussion of the research group Edward Homburg. Hans-Ulrich Gumbrecht reports on the nervous and angry reaction among most of the participants who predominantly belonged to the wartime generation, like Kozalek. The omission of the Third Reich at the meetings had been unmistakable, given that some had been former supporters of national socialism, most notably Gumbrecht's doctoral advisor, Hans-Robert Jaus, the head of the research group. As Gumbrecht recalls who was there, the atmosphere at the meeting, terror and dream broke a taboo. One possible trace of a scandal is perhaps the fact that the customary summary of the discussion for the conference volume was written by the Columbia University philosopher Richard Coons, so oddly enough, coming from an American guest and written in English. But it was not just the taboo of engaging with the experience of the Third Reich. Kozaik's claim to make dreams objects of historical inquiry 
also raised eyebrows. Ironically, the elite circle of philosophers, art historians, and literary scholars who had come together to discuss the functions of the fictive, that was the conference title, explained to the historian Kozalek that dreams were by no means historical sources. Another objection was the dreams only distorted reality, which ultimately raised doubts as to whether, as Kozalek claimed, they could contain social and political anticipations of the future. During the discussion, according to Kuhn's, to, to Kuhn's summary, Kozalek vehemently rejected the argument that the analysis of dreams did not have a place in historical scholarship and only belonged to psychoanalysis. Kuhn's, who at the time was in the process of combining psychoanalysis and art theory in his own work, supported the notion that dreams can be analyzed like any other fictional stories and narratives. But that was not what Kozalek meant when he described, when he ascribed an, and I quote, inescapable facticity of the fictive to the dream experiences of the Third Reich, to dreams that got under the skin. Coming to my last part. In his afterward to Third Reich of Dreams, written in winter 1980, Kozalek implicitly responded to these and other objections. Berat deciphered her dream reports with, quote, cautious, a cautious, sober interpretation, Kozalek once again affirmed, and with the multi-layered knowledge of the witness, end of quote. But this did not replace other approaches to dreams, such as those coming from the discipline of history, Kozalek argued. On the contrary, Third Reich of Dreams could offer answers to the controversy among historians that today, so in 1980, asks, and I quote, as a false opposition to what extent Hitler and with him German National Socialism were a single case, singular case, or whether Hitler was only the epiphenomenon of general social and economic conditions that were not limited to Germany, but only took a particular form in the country, end of quote. Kozalek was alluding here to the Sonderweg debate, and in particular to the intervention by David Blackburn and Jeff Ely, Mythen Deutsche Geschichtsschreibung had been published earlier that year. The outsized place of Hitler in the Third Reich of Dreams demonstrates for Kozalek that Hitler was the son of formative conditions that he went, but then went on to transcend on and surpass. So he was both you know, the result of long-term structures but Hitler also you know, transformed these structures. So the word that Kozai uses in German is aufgehoben, the Hegelian term. Returning to the argument from how rationalist history from 1971 about causal explanations and contemporary perceptions of events, he also referred to the study of another young British historian without directly naming him, Ian Kershaw's The Hitler Mythos, Volksmeinung Propaganda im Dritten Reich, which had appeared the same year and as Blackburn's, uh, Blackburn and Ely's Specularities of German History was first published in German. So this was you know, a time when Anglophone historians would still you know, publish their work first in German to inject themselves in, in German public memory debates. The dominant position that Hitler occupies in the dreams of the Third Reich shows, Kozelik argues, formulating the core argument of Kershaw's later Hitler biography, and I quote, where the inner disposition of the German population and Hitler as a charismatic leader 
and the sense of Max Weber cannot be separated, end of quote. In the afterword, Kozak repeats individual passages from Terror and Dream, including formulations emphasized by Bayard in her letter to Kozak. The narrator dreams have the character of events, Kozak writes, that precede the writing of them, despite the fact that they were written down ex post facto. And in exemplary fashion, the dreams lead us into the recesses of the apparently private realm of the everyday, to where waves of propaganda and terror penetrate. The dreams bear witness to an initially open terror that then turns insidious, and they even anticipate its violent crescendo. Or in a similar formulation that explicitly addressed the critique of the poetics and criminologies group, because I writes, the narrator dream stories testify as fictional tests to terror. At the same time, however, they are modes of profound performance of terror itself. So they're not, they're not just fictions. This political anthropological dimension of the dream experiences of a society breaking into a total future prohibits the reading of the dreams as only individual biographical or just as fictional sources. They are not only dreams about terror, but they are foremost and above all dreams dreamed in terror. Kozalik writes, the terror pursues humans all the way into sleep and insidiously changes them. For Kozalik, the dreams collected and interpreted by Averad are both conceived from terror itself. They are dictated upon the body. But precisely for this reason, they also contain a premonition of events to come, of what would even overshadow the terror of the 1930s. Dream experiences and dream expectations therefore fall into one. It is the shadow of tomorrow, the horror about being sucked into the vortex of the violent, redemptive future of the thousand-year Reich that had already buried itself into the consciousness of the dreamers. Let me conclude with one final quote. The history of dreams waits to be written, Walter Benjamin notes in 1927, and to open it up to insights would bring about the decisive defeat of superstitions of natural bias through historical enlightenment. Dreaming is part of history, end of quote. Against the dream kitsch of the pre-war period, again, this is a quote by Benjamin, the world of Sigmund Freud, Benjamin goes on to say, dream statistics would advance beyond the sweetness of anecdotal scenery into the draught of a battlefield, end of quote. It was from such a battlefield that Charlotte Berat reported her dreams. It is all the more astonishing that Berat's Third Reich of Dreams, as well as Kozelek's methodological remarks on experiences of time during the Third Reich, the subtitle of Terror and Dream, are almost completely absent from the historiography of modern Germany, even from the new and exciting work on fascist temporalities. Historians at last have discovered past futures, regimes of historicity, of power and time itself as historical themes, and Kozalik's name is often invoked. But Berat's The Third Reich of Dreams has remained largely absent, as has Kozalik's thinking about temporal experiences during National Socialism. Beirat and Kozelik offer a starting point for a yet to be written history of dreams in the age of totality. 
dreams, they argue, tell us more about the horizons of expectations of the 1930s than any other historical source. They reveal to us the possibility of a social reality whose truth can only be grasped through dreaming. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.